Part 10. Thales and the Egyptian Myths. Being partly of Phoenician background, Thales lived in Miletus from 624 to 545 BC. Until his middle age, Miletus was a part of the Lydian Empire, ruled from the court at Sardis, and Thales himself was a member of this oriental power structure, living with the ruler of Miletus at his court and visiting Egypt, presumably under the royal wardship. His assertions recall many Egyptian texts, and his main ideas are no more than the Egyptian mythological and theological motifs released from their inner theo from their initial theological contexts for the purpose of philosophical paideia among the less educated Miletians. Ever since the Enlightenment, modern scholars have tried to convince us that mythology does not satisfy the desire to know the causes of things. They suppose that the only positive function of myths and traditional tales is to make us feel at home in the world, as if sacred myths were devoid of any metaphysical content and serve simply as a pleasant intoxicant. However, it is incorrect to maintain that myth is related to the demythologized rationalistic account as opinion, doxa, is related to scientific knowledge, episteme. To regard wonder, from which philosophy begins, as ignorance, and as the confusion which arises when the mythical worldview is radically questioned, is to fail completely in the understanding of myth and its symbolic and transformative power. The variety of world representations found in different religious mythological traditions are providential veils, not arbitrary fictions which would compel poor Thales to reject all of them in the name of one single physiological world picture, naively held to be the only one which was both true and adequate. The many different world representations cannot prevent the apprehension, through direct intellectual intuition or contemplation of symbols, of the invisible realm beyond all representations. To say that Thales moves beyond representations to the underlying intelligible reality amounts to saying that the creators of mythological world pictures were extremely ignorant and unable to comprehend pure noetic reality which transcends all words and images. However, the symbolism of ancient hieratic myths and rituals shows this opinion to be both shaky and ungrounded. If Thales really tried to strip away the stage and see the playwright, he was doing such deconstruction either in search of the transcendent ruling principle, say Amun or Zeus, or for desacralized and impersonal nature, as it is understood by the moderns, since the trivial concept of nature and the related ontology of death, to use the term coined by Hans Jonas, for if matter is the primary reality, then life itself could only be a disease of matter.
is rather a recent invention. It seems that Thales ultimately regarded reality as theophany, the fabric of the ordered and beautiful cosmic unity, that is, the magnificent divine mask through which shines the essential light of first principles, namely, the gods. According to Thales, quote, The world is the most beautiful, Caliston Cosmos, for it is God's making, Poema Gartheu, something intangible that permeates all things as operating within or through the visible cosmos. And this principle cannot be reduced to a simple material substratum. Hence, a plenitude of gods, Theoi, is hidden behind the cosmic veils. But in this respect, Thales says nothing new, nothing that had not been already and better said by the Egyptians and other ancient nations a long time before. The world is a living being, a divine body like a statue, in need of the animating principle, the soul and the spirit which appear as the descending and ascending life-giving forces. According to Aristotle, And some say that soul is intermingled in the universe, for which reason perhaps Thales also thought that all things are full of gods. This doctrine is the same as the Egyptian one. The gods, Neteru, who bring life, ink, and animate all bodies, are manifestations, Kaperu, of the supreme transcendent principle, and constitute the different levels of reality. For Greeks, the gods, Theoi, are ever-living and everlasting principles. Though supporting evidence is insufficient, W.K.C. Guthrie boldly asserts that Thales, quote, rejected the anthropomorphic deities of popular religion, end quote, while retaining its language to the extent of saying that the whole world is filled with gods. It is a commonly held modern mistake to assume that the ancient Hellenes really worshipped the quote-unquote anthropomorphic gods conceived in the image of human beings. As J.P. Vernant clearly demonstrated, rather the opposite is true. Quote, in all its active aspects, in all the compounds of its physical and psychological dynamism, the human body reflects the divine models as the inexhaustible source of a vital energy when, for an instance, the brilliance of divinity happens to fall on a mortal creature, illuminating him as in a fleeting glow, with a little of that splendour that always clothes the body of God. End quote. To think that Hesiodic genealogies or Homeric accounts were accepted at face value by the Hellenes, even by the initiates and the educated minority, would be to indulge oneself in rationalistic naivety. Instead of 
trying to explore the metaphysical exegesis and symbolism of the sacred. Despite the supposed shift of traditional thought inaugurated by Thales, it is evident that the gods retained their force. Perhaps this and Perhaps his interpretation of unity and nature, if one is ready to believe poor testimonies, in certain respects followed Akhenaten's line of inquiry. But it is difficult to accept, as W.K.C. Guthrie argues that, quote, at the conscious level, he, Thales, had made a deliberate break with mythology and was seeking a rational account, end quote. Due to this quote-unquote deliberate break, Thales is regarded as the quote-unquote first philosopher in the contemporary Western sense, though unlike the modern research fellow, the genuine ancient philosopher is a noetically enlightened person who follows his lived philosophia as a model way of living and dying, or of becoming like a god. For him, there is not any sharp division between the inspired, sacred myth, which requires an esoteric interpretation, and logical accounts, or discursive reasonings, logos, between Sophia, as revealed or inherited wisdom, and Theoria, contemplation, or between philosophy as a commentary on certain privileged canonical texts, and philosophy as an individual dialectical inquiry. However, most contemporary Western scholars, shaped by the reality-distorting and tendentious modern paideia, insist that Thales wished to speak according to reason, logos, and his choice of reason over imagination marks the turning point in the history of thought. Such a point of view itself constitutes a mythology of sorts. When, Aristotle's, when Aristotle mentioned Thales, the founder of this type of philosophy, ala Thales men hotes toi autes archagos philosophias, arguing that water is the original source of all things, he actually means not of all philosophy, but only of this type. It does not say that, that Thales' principle, arche, or natural substance, namely water, is some material fluid brought from the neighbouring lake. The water may well be understood as the ineffable primordial water, symbol of the one, which transcends even the noetic realm of intellect. G.S. Kirk and J.E. Raven have already raised a doubt regarding the Aristotelian interpretation. Quote, Are we justified in inferring from the peripatetic identification of Thales' water as material principle that he believed the visible, developed world to be water in some way? This is the normal interpretation of Thales, but it is important to realise that it rests ultimately on the Aristotelian formulation, and that Aristotle, knowing little about Thales, and that indirectly, would surely have found the mere information that the world originated from water sufficient justification for saying that water was Thales' material principle, or arche, 
with the implication that water is a persistent substrate, end quote. It is more likely that Thales had in mind the Egyptian Nun, trying to translate the ancient metaphysics into a slightly different but no less mythical language of the universal and divine Phusis, which is not necessarily a material substrate. According to F. Schuon, quote, when Thales saw in water the origin of all things, it is as certain as can be that universal substance, the prakriti of the Hindus, is in question, and not the sensible element. End quote. But if Thales himself was partly neglected and misunderstood by subsequent generations, can one boldly assert, as the contemporary scholar does, the following statement? Quote, With Thales we are encountering, possibly for the first time in Western thought, a theology divested of provincial beliefs and poetic fabrications. Thales does not speak of the cultic god of the Milesians, among whom he lived, the pantheon of the Egyptians whom he visited, or the splendid fictions of Hesiod, which he had very likely heard at celebrations. End quote. Putting aside the disturbing question in what sense Thales is a representative of Western thought, or to what extent modern Westerners, moulded by the Reformation, the Enlightenment, and by Romanticism, have an exclusive right to the inheritance of ancient Mediterranean traditions. It is not necessary to speak of the Egyptian pantheon, the Aeneid, the gods, in order to follow one or another line of an esoteric exegesis. Reading the meaning beyond the iconographical structure of images and symbols, the only danger is to misunderstand the essence of cosmogonical myth and to view the ineffable, the first principle, as the natural, the substantial ground of all material manifestation, and thus to mythologize in a crude and opaque scientific manner. The concept of the primordial waters, known as the ineffable god, the Neoplatonic one, reflects the Egyptian cosmogonical picture of the noetic universe as a sphere of the divine light, or of the life-giving air, which stands for the spirit of Shu. Nun, or Nu, may also mean inert, in the sense of a certain unspeakable condition existing before the manifestation of being, represented as the rising of the noetic sun, Atum Ra, i.e. before an appearance, Hepa, of the archetypal Pleroma, and all subsequent irradiations. The hidden, dark, and inert state of the ultimate divine transcendence is described in the coffin texts. I am the waters. I am inert. I am a baby of his mother. I am a child, son of Hathor. I am an inert one in the waters. In the ordered universe, understood as theophany and the interplay of different divine forces, 
waters are represented by the Osirian netherworld, Duat, and the Nile. The psychic waters flow through the Duat inside the goddess Nut's body. Her name, Nut, being a feminine adjective meaning of the waters, and the sun god Ra, equivalent to Nus, is pictured travelling on them at night. Since Thales studied philosophy in Egypt, his doctrines surely reflected the Egyptian prototypes. According to the Hellenic tradition, Thales came to Miletus an old man having spent a long time studying philosophy in Egypt. More quotes. They, the Egyptians, say that the sun and moon do not use chariots, but boats in which to sail round in their courses, and by this they intimate that the nourishment and origin of these heavenly bodies is from moisture. They think also that Homer, like Thales, had gained his knowledge from the Egyptians when he postulated water as the source and origin of all things. Hudor Achen Hapanton K. Genison Tethesthai. For, according to them, Oceanus is Osiris, and Tethys is Isis since she is the kindly nurse and provider for all things. In fact, the Greeks call omission apousia, and koishin sonousia, and the sun, huios, from water, hudor, and rain, huzai. Dionysus also they call huais, since he is the lord of the nature of moisture, and he is no other than Osiris. Another quote, they call them up out of the water by the sound of trumpets, at the same time casting into the depths a lamb as an offering to the keeper of the gate. The trumpets they conceal in Bacchic wands, as Socrates has stated in his treatise On the Holy Ones. Furthermore, the tales regarding the Titans and the rites celebrated by night agree with the accounts of the dismemberment of Osiris and his revivification and regenesis. Tice anabiosisi kai palingenesis 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 Another quote. Not only the Nile, but every form of moisture they call simply the effusion of Osiris, and in their holy rites the water jar, in honour of the god, heads the procession. And by the picture of a rush they represent a king in the southern region of the world, and the rush is interpreted to mean the watering and fructifying of all things, and in its nature it seems to bear some resemblance to the generative member. End quote. The Hellenic philosophers, starting with Plato and Aristotle, constantly refer to the Iliad of Homer, where the ocean is called the father of gods and the source of all beings. Okeanu hosperg genesis pantesi tetuknai. Julian even equated Helios, the father of the seasons, who being the genuine son of the good, is 
one of the proceeds from one God, even from the noetic cosmos, which is itself one. With Oceanus, the lord of the twofold substance, saying as follows, quote, My meaning here is not obscure, is it? Seeing that before my time Homer said the same things. Oceanus, who is the father of all things, yes, for mortals and for the blessed gods too, as he himself would say, and what he says is true, for there is no single thing in the whole of existence that is not the offspring of the substance of Oceanus. Tis Okanu Pefukin Usius Ekgonon. It seems, as Julian himself suggests, that such doctrines, or their proper interpretations, are kept in silence because ultimately they have been taught by the gods or mighty daemons to the priests of the mysteries. Perhaps the only difference between Homer and Thales is that while Thales, like other so-called pre-Socratic philosophers, regarded his own dogmatic assertions about the ultimate nature of the universe as an accurate but no less mythical account approved by reason, though even in this respect we cannot be sure, Homer, or several singers who partly followed examples of the Akkadian and Ugaritic epic traditions, playfully presented the same teaching using poetic and mythological images. Therefore, Angelou rightly remarks that, quote, Homer's poetry would have the advantage over the dryness of philosophic prose, end quote. And the Egyptian myths used in the sacred rites would have the clear advantage over Homeric literature, which provoked such a turmoil in the minds of those purists and enlighteners who were unable either to understand the logic of the sacred myth or to delight in epic poetry, i.e. to enjoy its conventional and heroic aesthetics. <laughs>